The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox. These are your headlines. The Federal Reserve making its first rate hike since 2018 and signaling six more to come this year uh, as Ched, uh, Chair, Chair Jerome Powell plays down the possibility of a recession, boosting Wall Street into the close. In my view, the probability of a recession within the next year is not particularly elevated. And why do I say that? Aggregate demand is currently strong and most forecasters expect it to remain so. Uh, the Fed downgrades growth forecasts while sharply increasing inflation expectations with the central bank now predicting core PCE uh, will end the year at 4.1%. US President Joe Biden brands Russia's Vladimir Putin a war criminal and a move likely to escalate diplomatic tensions as the Kremlin calls the rhetoric unforgivable. Washington approves the delivery of new weapon systems to Kiev, including kamikaze switchblade drones, as part of its latest round of military assistance. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky receives a standing ovation from the US Congress as he renews his call for a no-fly zone, telling NBC exclusively that World War III may already have started whether it may have already started and what is the possibility of uh, this war if uh, Ukraine will fall. Good morning, Karen. There's a lot of uh, first on CNBC. The first time he's been called Ched now, uh, as I did in the headlines. Uh, the chair of the Fed. Ched, yeah, OK, it's the first time. Uh, anyway, the Federal Reserve has hiked rates for the first time in more than three years. Uh, after the central bank uh, took levels to near zero at the start, of course, of the COVID pandemic. The FOMC raised the benchmark rate, pretty much as expected, by 25 basis points to a 0.25 to 0.5% range. The Fed signalled it intends to hike rates at each of this year's six remaining meetings. Speaking after the decision, the uh, chairman, Jerome Powell, Ched, uh, said now was the right time to begin raising rates uh, given the strength of the post-pandemic rebound. The economy is very strong and against the backdrop of an extremely tight labor market and high inflation, the committee anticipates that ongoing increases in the target range for the federal funds rate will be appropriate. In addition, we expect to begin reducing the size of our balance sheet at a coming meeting. The Federal Reserve has also published its updated rate hikes projection, or so-called dot plot. It showed eight FOMC members expecting more than seven hikes this year, while 10 thought that seven rises for 2022 would be appropriate. Now, this pulls the Fed funds rate up to an average of 1.9% by EN. So we have moved, Jeff, haven't we, from the three to the seven range uh, from where we were initially. Yeah, let's also look at the forecasts around inflation and growth over coming years. The Fed publishing 
these updated forecasts for coming years after downplaying inflation as transitory. It's now expected to hit 4.1% this year, up from the Fed's previous forecast of 2.7%. That's expected to ease down to uh, 2.7 and 2.3% respectively over the next two years before settling at its 2% target longer term. GDP growth being cut from 4% down to 2.8% with the Fed in particular highlighting the economic spillover effects from the war in Ukraine. Projections from 2023 and 2024 remain unchanged at 2.2 and 2. Sorry, 2% respectively. Well, Powell insisted conditions are strong for the economy to continue to, quote, flourish, even as we see this tightening of monetary policy. The probability of a recession within the next year is not particularly elevated. And why do I say that? Aggregate demand is currently strong, and most forecasters expect it to remain so. If you look at the labor market, also very strong. Conditions are tight, and payroll job growth is continuing at very high levels. Household and business balance sheets are strong. And so all signs are that this is a strong economy, indeed uh, one that uh, will be able to uh, flourish not to say withstand, but certainly uh, flourish as well um, in the face of less accommodative monetary policy. Well, let's take you to the market reaction. And much stronger in some ways than what the market had predicted uh, from a number of months back. If you think about the three rate hikes penciled in the end of last year to now seven, every meeting a live one. I mean, there had been predictions out there in the marketplace. Goldman Sachs, of course, uh, early on warning that there was potential for every meeting to be one for the markets to watch. And we saw some uh, early reaction then. But uh, the markets, I think, have had so much to grapple with since the end of last year, namely the the Russia-Ukraine war. And this has been... A big ticket item for the markets as it's in the energy price surge and what that's meant for inflation and growth expectations. So the market reaction, I think, very interesting yesterday to see such a strong bid, 1.5% pop on the Dow. The S&P 500 rallying 2.2%, the Nasdaq out in front 3.7%. If you think about all those initial concerns, a lot of investors had it was really concentrated around the path for technology if you had an aggressive rate path. We've got that aggressive rate path now, yet technology stocks soaring and particularly FANG stocks I think there are other parts of the market that were a lot more predictable, namely what you saw on the banking names. That had been an area where you've seen a little bit of a fade around uh, concerns around growth in recent weeks around this uh, shooting high commodity story. But uh, both trades were very firm yesterday, which is why we had such strong ranges for the major indices. If you just delve into what you had for the, the bank uh, ETF, for instance, uh, gaining 3% intraday and for some of those big fang stocks up 4.7%. So very strong components of the market. Let me take you to Treasuries. This was the reaction. We saw the two-year move up uh, to the 2% mark. Uh, we slipped a little bit this, this morning, 1.91, where we approached. And on the 10-year, the, uh, we got uh, around to that 2.25%, 2.14% currently morning session. So we have flipped a little bit, which does indicate uh, uh, some movement in these uh, safe haven assets uh, on the back of uh, what we've had from the Fed. Let's get to those U.S. bank stocks. I mentioned very strong trade. Here's how they look at an individual level. You can see one of the strongest ones was Morgan Stanley, more than 6% higher in the trade. JP Morgan, close to 4.5%. 
Uh, so those were the two uh, standouts in the sector, but gains of roughly 3% for the other major banks stayed side. Asia's picking up on all this, and uh, you'd think uh, in the scenario where we're talking about strong uh, trajectory for rates now, you'd think it would be negative for some of the major markets, but it's really not. And you can see Asian markets recovering. It's been in rally mode anyway on the back of the uh, Hong Kong tech story, the concerns about potential delisting and the auditing of Hong Kong names, uh, Chinese regulation, what you've seen around the COVID-19 situation situation in China and of course the Russia-Ukraine situation. This has been uh, an overarching fear that has dominated the trade for the last couple of sessions. But yesterday we saw huge gains unlocked and that continues again today. The Hong Kong market rallying more than 5%, dragging with it other areas of the market. 1.9% on the Shanghai Composite and uh, the Japanese stock market is one of the best performers of the region today. I want to take you to the European market close yesterday. You can see just how strong that trade was. We also recaptured a lot of lost territory, uh, close to 6,000. 600 on the French market, for instance, 3.7% pop. More on the uh, Zetradax in Germany and on the, the FTSE. We are very close to that 7,300 level. So right across the board, very strong uh, pace is what we witnessed for these major stock markets. And let's get to the opening calls and the future stateside to see what's in store today. We have a bit more to the upside for the major European markets in contrast to the FTSE, which is a little bit weaker at this point. But it does indicate uh, we've not got the same level of enthusiasm as we begin the trade this morning as where we wrapped up shop yesterday. Uh, US futures, early indications are that uh, the US market could also be a bit soft. This is often the problem when you follow up after such a strong session, just how much is left in that trade. And you can see S&P Dow Jones indicated just a fraction week at this hour. Yeah, would the markets have rallied regardless of what happened yesterday, all bar a 50 basis point hike? That, that's one of our questions going forward, I guess. Um, Winston Churchill once said something along the lines of, whether it's true or not, Americans will do the right thing, or you can always count on them to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Richard Kelly is head of global strategy at TD Securities. Uh, if Churchill did say that, which is contested, Richard, as well, uh, is the Federal Reserve doing the right thing now? Because I say this with a preface that you say they are hiking in the dark, but is it better to be hiking in the dark rather than doing nothing in the dark? Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I think Powell was pushed on that several times in the call last night in terms of, you know, whether they had perfect uh, 2020 hindsight and foresight and what they would have done in, in these things. I think they are doing the right thing now in terms of starting to move these rates higher. I think you certainly could have debated whether they should have started with a 50 or not, given, you know, where inflation is at, how long it's going to take them to get back down, where they're starting this policy start from. Um, but yeah, I, I think they're on the right path now. It's going to take them a bit of time, but I think that they also are, are very ready that if they see inflation going faster than they already forecast, that you know they, they can increase the pace here, both in terms of the pace of rate hikes or the you know delivering fifties in a certain meeting, and we still have quantitative tightening still to come that I think is going to be announced next month, and that will be yet another chance for them to uh, push back on this market and, and try and get rates up. Do they need to physically be doing anything, Richard, uh, given the fact that rates in the United States, whether it be on the uh, on the curve from the five to the 30 year, uh, which a lot of mortgages are priced off and the 30 year rate itself on U.S. mortgages, a lot of rates have already moved. Does the Fed actually need to physically be doing it to send the right signaling about their concerns on the inflationary uh, aspect of the economy? Well, they do ultimately have to deliver. I agree. And you, know, you can similarly put this in, into the, the Bank of England position over here in terms of what's priced in. I think most central banks are very happy for the market to price in a more hawkish path right now because it's a bit of a hedge. 
Um, if it turns out that inflation, for some you know mysterious reason, starts to come off faster than everyone expects, central banks won't need to deliver quite as much. They can be a little bit more patient. But I think that the Fed is perfectly fine with the markets having priced that in. But if the Fed doesn't deliver, the, the markets will have to price that out ultimately on a very short-term basis. And what you'll start to see is a bit more of a steepener get in there. Um, you know, they may take out the early pricing for the front half, but they'll have to assume that they'll have to hike faster later on. So I think you know you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. I guess is the moral of that story. Richard, depending on which economists you listen to, there is an argument uh, being made, you'll know that, that the uh, US economy could already be heading into recession or at least uh, flat growth. And when you look at the retail sales number we had yesterday and when you look at uh, perhaps the um, salary increase or lack of to match inflation that we saw in the non-farm payrolls number do you think that the data is starting to turn here? And what does that mean for that projected six hikes going forward? Do you think it will materialize? Well, I think, you know, on a short term basis, high inflation, high energy prices, high uncertainty uh, and a Fed starting to hike. None of those things are great for growth. So you have to see a slowdown. You should see a slowdown coming through there. And we know that this pace of growth that we maybe have gotten accustomed to a four or five, six percent GDP pace uh, just isn't sustainable. So does it need to slow down? Absolutely. Is there a risk that it slows down more than all of us expect? Definitely. Uh, but I think, you know, in terms of the risks of recession, if you're looking at 2024, 2025, I think it's completely reasonable to think that we hit some sort of recession, some sort of bit. That, that's where you've gotten all of your tightening priced in. That's where all of the path goes through there. And, and you have more uncertainties coming through. Um, but short of, you know, kind of some other large shock that's coming through, I don't know there's enough in the system to drive that on a very short term basis over the next three to six months. But a growth slowdown has to come in and, and you know, Ultimately, the Fed is hiking to slow the economy. Uh, and this is a period, you know, maybe in the last cycle, we all got used to them being very, very hesitant, very, very patient to, to move through there. This is one where they, they probably need to push up the unemployment rate. They need to materially slow the uh, pace of jobs if they're going to get that inflation rate back under control. So as we look at um, equity market levels at the moment and we try to model the, uh, the, the, the appropriate valuation for equities at the moment then of uh, higher bond yields. Do you think we're there yet? Has the market fully priced in what is expected now from Jay Powell? Uh, I don't think so. And I think that the big side still to price in are probably two things. And that is exactly where is that terminal rate and probably more importantly, quantitative tightening. Because I think if you look at equities, you look at broader risk markets, that's really been pushed through all the quantitative easing that's gone in. That, that is the channel as to where that's supposed to operate. The Fed has pumped tons of liquidity into the system. It's sitting there in stocks. It's sitting there uh, across risk assets. And now as they get into quantitative tightening, which I think is probably going to be twice the pace that they ran in the last cycle, that risk is you're going to be sucking that liquidity back out of there a bit more rapidly than maybe markets have priced in. So I think yesterday there was a relief that he kept pushing back on the recession risk. Um, really downplayed the growth slowdown. And I also think there was a lot more cash on the sidelines over the last few weeks, given the war on, in, in Ukraine has just left investors uh, much less hesitant to get invested. So there was a bit of a relief that you could get into yesterday. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there still is a, a risk when you go through uh, and looking at stocks and across risky assets here, as you price the Fed actually starting to shrink their balance sheet, even if that is going to be mostly passive. 
Richard, I want to pick up on some of those points because I, I do agree there was a dialogue between Russia and Ukraine. The market really did seize on that narrative as well, hopes for some form of a, a resolution on the back of the, this war that's been playing out. But if you take a look at uh, components of the market yesterday, for me, the technology trade was just strange that you've got concerns out there about this rate hiking path terminal rates at 2.75% at some point. Surely there should have been some caution in tech stocks. No, and again, and I think that's sort of that relief rally side of things, right? I mean, things have been so battered over the last several weeks, people probably um, wanting to kind of reallocate a little bit. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to imagine that that sort of, you know, the, the growth value side of, of how the stock market should react, I, I think is still kind of in there. And I think, you know, as you discussed before, something like bank stocks, where they're very interest sensitive in terms of what that goes through, um, if you have a Fed on a much more aggressive path, that sort of makes sense. As you get into technology, you should be rotating out of those growth side into value in terms of where investors are going to go. But I just think there was a lot of cash sitting there waiting to kind of reallocate a lot of fear factor that ironically, maybe the Fed kind of delivering this as expected starts to take a bit of the uncertainty and a bit of the fear. And I think you, you can look at the same thing. If you look at break evens right now, I think a lot of the premium that we've priced into the market is not necessarily inflation, but it's inflation uncertainty. Investors, consumers, households have just become have reached a point where they feel it is very, very difficult to forecast inflation, to know what they should plan for. And that in and of itself brings extra term premium into the market risk premium that, that needs to get taken out. So if the Fed can start to reduce some of that uncertainty, that redu reduction in uncertainty is broadly positive for risk. And I think that is, is how I would look at what happened yesterday, that there was a sense that the Fed is starting to bring some reduction in uncertainty into the market. And that helps to now support our, our ability to plan and move forward. Rich, I just want to focus in on the potential still for a 50 basis point move because this is not something we've had a chance to talk about for for many, many years. And it's still a live prospect here. It wasn't for the first rate hike. And given the uncertainty we've still got around the economy and the outlook here, but there's potential. And even uh, Bullard at this point, he was a dissenter. He wanted still that 50 basis point move. What would be the catalyst and what would be the type of scenario where we see the Fed opt for the 50 basis point? Or could it be front loaded to it, you know, towards the beginning of this year versus later on this year? Right. I, I think going into May, it seems more likely that they want to get the quantitative tightening announcements. So that might still be a reasonably low risk um, for them to come to 50. But if you're looking into the summer, and I think we've had a few more prints on inflation and they continue to come to the upside, uh, if the war in Ukraine continues to drive more disruptions, if we see this go through more broadly, I think that's a pace where they can, they can kind of speed things up. And in one of the last questions that Powell had last night, there was even a point where he said something to the effect of, you know, they're going to look to get back to neutral as fast as reasonably practical. And I think that gives you a sense of what they want to do. This is not like the last cycle where they were trying to just move as gradually as possible and not break the system. Uh, they want to get back to neutral. They know that that's the appropriate stance to get there. And they know that there's only a, a certain pace that they can go. But the, the, the Fed looks at this in real rates. And even though there was a lot of attention on the fact that they're now overshooting um, where that neutral rate is supposed to be in the end, if you look at where they're also forecasting core PCE, the overshoot they have in rates completely matches the overshoot in inflation. So they're really targeting trying to get that real rate back to about a positive 50 basis points. And I think that's how you look at it. I, I think they can move faster if they need to, just given how low real rates are. Um, but I think we'll probably still need a few more upside prints on inflation, a little more fear factor uh, for them to, to feel like they actually need to pull the trigger on that.
All right, Richard, nice to see you. Thanks for joining us and helping us understand the latest Fed moves. Richard Kelly, Head of Global Strategy at TD Securities. Um, Let me also tell you, coming up on the programme a little later on, Ukraine's President Zelensky gives an impassioned address to the American Congress and says a no-fly zone is crucial to stop Moscow from, quote, terrorising his cities. We will bring you the latest on the uh, Ukraine invasion and his comments when we come back. And for more on the Fed's new normalisation path, you can check out this Corkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. It is true. In the darkest time for our country, for the whole Europe, I call on you to do more. New packages of sanctions are needed constantly, every week, until the Russian military machine stops. Restrictions are needed for everyone on whom this unjust regime is based. We propose that the United States sanctions all politicians in the Russian Federation who remain in their offices and do not uh, uh, cut ties with those who are responsible for the aggression against Ukraine. Ukraine's President Zelensky there speaking to Congress. He likened the Russian invasion to Pearl Harbor and called on Washington to intensify its efforts to end the war, give more weapons and implement a no-fly zone. Well, President Zelensky believes negotiations can still bring the war to an end. NBC's Lester Holt spoke with the Ukrainian president and asked him if President Biden would consider sending fighter jets as an alternative to the no-fly zone. This is the choice for the President Biden to, 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 to take and the whole civilist world to, would need to take. And hopefully that choice would coincide with the choice of, of the Ukrainian people because currently uh, Russia has uh, um, an advantage in the air. Our partners can support us from the standpoint of uh, supporting and supplying of those aircraft. President Biden has been very clear he's worried about provocations that could trigger World War III. Do you understand his concern there? And do you agree that it wouldn't take much to end up in World War III? Well, nobody knows whether it may have already started and what is the possibility of uh, uh, this war if uh, Ukraine will fall, in case Ukraine will fall. It's very hard to say. And we've seen this 80 years ago when the, the Second World War has started. 
And there were similar tragedies in the history. Nobody would be able to predict when the full-scale war would start and how it will end, and who will end, put an end to that. In any case, the wars uh, tend to end up in millions of people lost. Uh, people die in millions of uh, um, buildings destroyed. Now we have different technologies, nuclear weapons. In this case, we have the, the whole civilization at stake. The U.S. administration has raised concerns that Russia might launch a chemical attack. Do you think there is a red line and whether that would be a red line that the U.S. would move forward and become more actively involved in combat? I believe that Russians have already crossed all the red lines when they started shelling um, civilians. They've killed hundred, over a hundred of children. And uh, I don't understand the meaning of uh, red lines. What else should they, we wait for? For letting Russians kill 200, 300 or 400 uh, children. NBC's Lester Holt speaking with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky there. Well, Russia has continued its shelling of some Ukrainian cities, with Ukraine's foreign ministry saying a bomb was dropped on a theatre in the port city of Mariupol, where hundreds of civilians were taking shelter. Mariupol City Council said many were trapped in the building during the attack. Ukraine's military has said children were among the casualties, but that the total number of victims is still unknown. A video shared on social media appeared to show the destroyed Mariupol drama theatre. Russia has denied targeting the building. U.S. President Biden has called Vladimir Putin a war criminal in Washington's harshest rebuke of the invasion yet. He made his comments after the Ukrainian president's address to Congress, where videos of Ukrainian suffering was shown. The Kremlin responded, telling state media that Biden's comments were, quote, unacceptable and unforgivable. Biden also outlined a further $800 million in assistance to Ukraine's military. The new package includes drones and anti-aircraft systems, but he stopped short of agreeing to all of Zelensky's requests, once again resisting calls to establish a no-fly zone. Ukrainian and Russian negotiators have reportedly made progress on a 15-point plan to end Russian hostilities in Ukraine uh, if Kiev agrees to uh, NATO neutrality and limiting its armed forces. Now, according to the Financial Times, the proposal still face headwinds, especially over Ukrainian territory seized by Moscow, as well as the involvement of Western powers in guaranteeing Ukraine's security. NATO has been reinforcing its eastern flank, with allies sending troops and supplies to the countries closest to Russia and Ukraine. 200 French troops are set to arrive at the Amari military airbase in Estonia, where Sylvia joins us from now. And Sylvia, there's no truth in the fact that because your name is Amaro that we've sent you to Amari, I presume. <laughs> Yeah, Amaro, Amari, but in fact, none of it is related. We are in the western part of Estonia this morning and at this airbase exactly because it is a very important point for NATO. And just to give you an idea, we have just seen two jets taking off from this airbase to do one of two possibilities, either for a routine air policing exercise 
or second to possibly check whether there there was uh, some sort of unusual uh, element in the airspace of Estonia and these two jets were to check what's going on. So that just gives you an example of what takes place here at the Amari Air Base. This is, as I said, a very important point for NATO for air policing and this air, pay, air base has been working 24-7 since 2014 after the illegal annexation of Crimea. I have to say as well that NATO has been stepping up its presence here at the Amari Air Base over the last few weeks in the aftermath of these heightened tensions that we're seeing with Russia. Now within this context when it comes to talking about air policing and so on I have to say as well and you mentioned just moments ago how the Ukrainian president was asking the United States once again for a no-fly zone and I asked about that here in Estonia. I spoke with the chief of defense for the Estonian armed forces and he explained why this would be a very tricky political decision. It is a um, very hard political decision because basically if we the NATO uh, declares the no flights down, then we must use the force. It, it's very, very similar to say the Estonian troops now that advance towards Russia. It's basically we are entering to the armed conflict with Russia then. And then uh, who wants it? Uh, let's ask the, the people on the street who are saying we have to create no-fly zone and that's what NATO must do. Are you really behind these values? Are you ready to go to war against Russia uh, who has nuclear weapon? And the, I'm not saying we have to do this or that. I'm just trying to explain the considerations. So NATO has been stepping up its presence across the eastern flank, but it has so far refused to send troops to Ukraine. And so I asked the lieutenant general about what it would take for NATO to actually getting involved, in particular because we're seeing more and more comments about concerns emerging that Russia might actually use chemical weapons in Ukraine. And this is what the lieutenant general had to say. Russia like I said, may invent the excuses, uh, which, you know, according to our understanding, it doesn't make any sense. They will just figure out why they do this. So the chemical weapon, the tactical nuclear weapon, they can use it. And not, it's not necessary to use on uh, Ukrainian ground. They may do it somewhere in, uh, I don't know, in far, far north, for example, and just the fact that they use this will uh, bring us another question already and we, are, we may start to hesitate and that will break our unity, our decisiveness and uh, of course will bring us closer to the Russian objectives. Let's talk about this. I, I don't think we, we must talk with Russia too much as long they are on a Ukrainian ground or as long they behave like they behave. Because, we, again, we cannot uh, escalate. It's not on our hands. It doesn't matter what we do. They will uh, invent the reason why uh, they must defend themselves. So if you ask, can they do this? Yes, but it is a political decision. There is no military purpose for that. But would that 
lead NATO to intervene and get involved in the conflict? If Russia use weapon of mass destruction, I think yes. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.